Stand with me and open up to the book of Colossians. We'll be reading out of chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you can find this in a pew Bible in front of you on page 681. Again, Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we're so gracious for, Lord, the mercy and grace that you gave through us through the sacrifice of your Son. And, God, we're just thankful that through that you were triumphant over death, over the grave, and over Satan. God, just show us through your word this morning. God, reveal to us, um, Lord, your power, and, uh, Lord, what uh, it meant um, to send your son to the cross. Lord, we're, uh, we're thankful and just pray that this morning you would use Pastor Bruce to speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing in our series. We began last Sunday on the message of the cross that we're calling Scandalous. And as we learned last Sunday, the cross has always caused a scandal among people, and it always will. In fact, Paul reminds us of this fact in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, when he writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And yet, no matter how scandalous, the cross is always necessary because that is God's plan to save us from our sins. So from a biblical perspective, what happened on the cross is the single most important event in all of history. In fact, no event can compare to it. Max Licato writes in his book, No Wonder They Call Him Savior, the cross rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. My, what a piece of wood. History has idolized it and despised it. Gold-plated it and burned it. Worn it and trashed it. History has done everything but to ignore it. That's the one option that the cross does not offer. No one can ignore it. And today we're going to see that even Satan himself could not ignore the cross. Now, let's pause here for just a moment to make sure we're all on the same page here. When we talk about the cross, what do we mean? And what we mean is the wooden post upon which Jesus Christ was crucified. Today, it is rather common to see images of the cross adorning churches or even dangling from necklaces, hanging in homes, and even marking one's body. And yet the image of the cross that is so sanitized for us today was abhorrent. It was even grotesque to those living in the first century. After all, the cross back then was the very symbol of evil torture, and shame. 
The cross was a standard means of execution in the Roman times. Two wooden beams were fastened together in the shape of a cross or, or even a T. The wrists and ankles of the victim were tied or nailed to the wooden beams, which was then hoisted into the ground. And there the man hung until he died. With this image of the cross in mind, it seems rather absurd then to even think that Jesus triumphed on the cross. After all, the cross is where men died in agonizing defeat, not in triumphant victory. In fact, notice this in your notes. I invite you to pull out that sheet uh, in your bulletin there, and you can follow along on that, or you're welcome to just follow along on the screen behind me. But notice this coming up on the screen and in your notes. On the cross, when you first look at it, at first appearance, at first glance, it appeared that Jesus had lost the battle. But in reality, Jesus had triumphed on the cross. He triumphed, as we're going to see here this morning, he triumphed over sin and Satan. Now, God promised this day was coming way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God said this to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, that is Christ, will crush your head. And you, that is Satan, will strike his heel. Jesus Christ here is the seed of the woman who would one day crush the serpent's ugly head. And this crushing blow of Satan's head was struck when Jesus died on the cross. And in the process, his, quote, heel was bruised on the cross by Satan. On Friday about sundown, when they took the lifeless body of Jesus down from the cross, let me tell you, it looked, it appeared that Satan had won the battle, not Jesus Christ. Yes, Satan delivered a terrible blow to Jesus on Good Friday. No doubt he probably maybe thought he had thrown a knockout punch, but Satan was wrong. All he did was strike the heel of Jesus because on Sunday morning, the true victor walked out of the grave alive from the dead. Don't you wish, though, at least I do, that there was a video camera of some sort, maybe an iPhone way back then, that had been able to capture the drama that took place in the spiritual world when Jesus died on the cross. A cosmic battle was being fought. Satan was there. God was there. Jesus was there. And so were we. And Paul gives us a glimpse into what took place. He gives us this picture of what took place on the cross in Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15, this passage of scripture in which Kirk read for us. Look at it with me again. It says, In you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. 
And he, that is speaking, he's talking about Jesus here. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And so what we see here in this passage is two pictures that Paul gives to us. We see Jesus triumphing over sin and triumphing over Satan on the cross. And so let's kind of break that down for the next few minutes and unpack it a little bit and see what it means for us even today, the implications of it. Number one, Jesus triumphed over sin on the cross. Now to really begin to understand this passage, it helps to imagine all of this playing out in, a, in the courtroom of heaven, if you will, where God is judge, where Satan is the accuser, and we, we are the accused, or we are the prosecuted. And so you'll notice here, and your notes coming up on the screen, the accusation of Satan against us. And his accusation is simply this, guilty. Guilty. Satan stands before God, and he accuses us of being guilty of sin. And those charges, by the way, are accurate. Since we are sinners by both our nature, by being born the moment we're born, we're sinners, and by choice, we sin. In fact, in verse 14, Paul describes God's law, which we have broken as this handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not, God's law has claim over us. We are not free to write our own rules for the simple reason that God has already written them. And so these laws, Paul says, stands against us, and we stand guilty before these laws in silence. But Satan is not so silent. He reminds God in the courtroom of heaven of his very promise in Ezekiel 18.4 that the soul who sins will die as our accuser. Satan quite possibly approaches God with even a list of our sins, and he comes armed with reasons why we should die. After all, that's the promise that God made. And Satan's accusations are just. God said in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Which brings us then to the penalty of sin. Very simply, it's death. So the accusation of Satan is that we are guilty, and the penalty of our sin is death. The dispute here is not whether one is guilty of sin or not. The issue is over what should be done about our predicament of being guilty of sin. Satan says, God, condemn him or her. But God says, I will save him or her. Satan insists that we should have the same judgment as he. After all, we are also tainted with sin, marked with sin against God. Satan knew that he could count on God to hold fast to his holiness, hold fast to his justice, the very nature of who he is. Satan knew that God was loving, but he also knew that his love could not override nor cancel out his justice. But what Satan did not know 
was that God would keep his promise that the soul who sins will die. But someone else would do the dying in his redemptive plan of humanity. The wages of sin would still be death, but God's Son would die in our place on the cross. In fact, Paul describes this very transaction here in verse 14 when he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way. In other words, he's wiped it away, having nailed it to the cross. In those days, it was rather common that when a criminal was hung on a cross, his crime had to be publicly proclaimed. The list of transgressions was written and nailed above the dying person. Pilate put a notice above Christ's head. You may remember with the simple accusation, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Of course, they, it was a mockery. They didn't really believe it. It was ironic that in that mockery, it was even true. In fact, next Sunday, we're going to look at some of these ironies of the cross here in Matthew. And high above Pilate's words, if you will, there was the cosmic bulletin board on which our sins were listed. And though we weren't born yet, the sins that we would commit 2,000 years later were recorded there. Now, don't miss what God does then with our sins. God took the record of all of our sins that made you a debtor and instead of holding them up in front of your face and using them as a warrant to send you to hell, he put them in his son's hand and he drove a nail through them into the cross. For on the cross, God saw Christ dying for our sins. His wrath was turned away. His justice was demonstrated. And the penalty was paid, which brings us then to the very verdict of God. Forgiven. That is what God proclaims on those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. As their substitute, as their sacrifice, the one who died in their place. You are forgiven. In fact, Paul says in verse 13 that God has forgiven us all our trespasses, all our sins. God requires two things of us. Do you realize that? Every one of us here, we are required two things. Punishment for our sins and perfection in our lives. Our sins must be punished. And our lives must be righteous. But we, we on our own, we cannot bear our own punishment. And we on our own, we cannot provide our own righteousness. Therefore, God provided his own son to do both of these things for us. Jesus bears our punishment on the cross, and he performs our righteousness. And when we believe, and when we receive Jesus Christ as our substitute and sacrifice, all of his punishment and all of his righteousness is counted. It's a transaction. It's credited to us. Jesus, in fact, satisfied our debt so completely that people then who believe in Jesus Christ 
no longer owe God any righteousness. That's why Jesus' very last words on the cross were what? It is finished. Our debt was, quote, paid in full. This is why we can then say with the Apostle Paul in the great passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. In fact, a great question for us to pause and ask ourselves even now is, are we in Christ Jesus or are we outside of Christ Jesus? And the difference, oh, the difference is for all eternity, in heaven or hell. For those who do not accept Jesus as their Savior, listen to me, Satan's original indictment against you stands. The penalty is death, and the verdict is guilty as charged. But for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, for those who believe and receive, we have been forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God for all eternity. That's something to get excited about. That's something to praise God for. Here's the point. What happened on the cross played out in the courtroom of heaven, and it not only impacted us as guilty sinners, but it impacted Satan as our accuser. Which then brings us to the second triumph here. Jesus triumphed not only over sin, but he triumphed over Satan on the cross. The first victory of Christ's work on the cross is the forgiveness of our sins. And the second is the cosmic overthrow of Satan and his demons. It's true that we must still, as Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, we must still wrestle against principalities and powers. But if we wrestle, if we fight, if we stand in the power of Jesus' shed blood, they are as good as defeated because the blow Jesus struck on the cross, let me tell you, was lethal. Notice this, first of all, Satan was defeated decisively on the cross. He was defeated decisively on the cross. And I want to simply show you three ways in which Satan was defeated on the cross. Notice the first way, that Satan's works were destroyed by Christ's death. The works of Satan were destroyed by Christ's death. We see this in 1 John verse three, chapter 3, verse 8, when John the Apostle writes, He who sins is of the devil... For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now this word destroy, it doesn't mean to annihilate. It means to render powerless. It's like a mighty machine that has lost its power. When Jesus died on the cross, you could say he pulled the plug from Satan. So what are the works of the devil that Christ destroyed on the cross? Well, in the context of this verse, the works of the devil are sins. Think about it this way. When people commit sin, it is a work of the devil. And the work of the devil is to do what? It's to tempt people to sin. And when we sin, the work of the devil is accomplished. 
So what Christ came to destroy on the cross is not just the guilt of our sin, but also the power of sin in our lives. Think of it this way. Christmas, which we celebrate across the world, is God's invasion on earth to rescue people from the devil and to destroy the sin in their lives. And Easter, which we will celebrate here in two Sundays, is Christ's victory over Satan and sin. And so the first defeat here that we see, the first work, Satan's works here were destroyed by Christ's death. Number two, Satan was disarmed. Satan was disarmed and disgraced by Christ's victory. Look again what it says in Colossians here in chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. To disarm someone means to take from them the means by which they might hurt you. For example, if a man is pointing a gun at you, he's not disarmed until what? Until you take the gun away and the ammunition from him. As long as he has the gun and ammunition still in his hand, you are still in big trouble. He has not yet been disarmed. And in the same way, when Jesus died on the cross, he took the guns and the ammo out of the hands of Satan and his demons. Now, here's the question. What weapon did Jesus disarm Satan of? Well, go back to this courtroom of heaven. And what is Satan doing before God the judge in the courtroom of heaven? He's accusing us, right? And he's accusing us that we are guilty of sin and that we should die. In fact, that's what Satan's name means, accuser. And that's what he does. He accuses us before God. But now this destructive weapon that Satan had was now stripped from him, stripped from his hand. Satan was disarmed of the single weapon that can condemn us, and that is unforgiven sin, because Christ paid for it on the cross. When Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, that accusation, was nullified, or as Paul says, it was wiped out. So what does this mean for us today? What's the implication of this as we live out as Christ followers each and every day of the week? It means without sin and without the law, the handwriting of requirements to condemn us, Satan is a defeated foe. He is disarmed of his accusations against us. Oh, by the way, it is true. Boy, it is true. Satan can still falsely accuse us. And he does, does he not? He can and he does still falsely accuse us, but his accusations are powerless. He can point his little finger at us, but he's shooting blanks. In other words, Satan is like Barney Fife without his one little bullet. And so when Satan accuses us, we now can stand with confidence 
And we can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their sacrifice? Who can bring a charge against me? And Paul's answer is, it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Paul says that Christ not only disarmed Satan on the cross, but I love this, he disgraced Satan and his demons. He disgraced them by making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them in it. In other words, Jesus publicly humiliated Satan and his foes by exposing Satan for who he is. He is a liar and a murderer. And then Jesus triumphed over Satan and his foes by returning to glory, returning to heaven, to sit at the right hand of the Father. As one author describes the scene in this way, and I quote his words, picture the Roman legions returning home from a victorious war. And as they march through the city, vast crowds of people line the streets to cheer the victor. Then come the victorious generals, each one accompanied by singers, dancers, and musicians. Finally, at the end of the parade, march the captives. With their hands tied, they are defeated and now brought back to be displayed as proof of Rome's invincible power. And when Jesus died, something like that happened in the spiritual realm. Satan and his foes were disgraced. They were disarmed and he was disgraced. But we also see number three here, that Satan's power of death was broken. And it was broken by Christ's resurrection from the grave. Now, of all the fears, and there are many fears that grip our hearts, is there not? And I'm sure even now there are fears in your own heart that you struggle with. But of all the fears that grip people's hearts none is greater than the fear of death we don't like to talk about death in fact we use terms such as passed away instead of he died she died to avoid the very word death in fact most people will do anything to change the subject instead of talking about death because deep down in the human heart there is a fear of death and Satan uses that fear to keep us enslaved. And he plays upon our fear of death to keep us in the chains of sin. Every time I conduct a funeral, I'm reminded what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin. Think about it. When the unsaved die, when the unbeliever dies, someone who has not yet placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when they die, they die with their sins still upon them. Like a heavy weight that is pulling them down to hell. They die miserable and they die fearful because they don't know what to do with their sins. 
They're coming to the end of their life, and they intuitively know, because we're made in the image of God, that this is not all there is. There is something beyond death. Oh, what a difference it makes to die knowing something, knowing truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that your sins are forgiven and the power of death is broken. Notice what it says here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, speaking of Jesus, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Yes, there is no denying it. Death stinks. It's tragic. It is sorrowful. It causes heartache and pain. It is loss in people's lives. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, he says this. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So death is an enemy that we struggle against. Death is the consequence of our sins. But Christ conquered it for us. And now he gives us this glorious promise in John eleven twenty six, 26, when Jesus himself says, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Not physically, but spiritually. We will never die spiritually. We will never be separated from God Almighty. And then Jesus asks this heart-penetrating question, do you believe this? John Stott comments in his book, The Cross of Christ, that for the Christian, death has become a trivial episode, a minor inconvenience and nothing more. Unbelievers don't understand that. They don't understand that kind of confidence as we enter, as we face death's door. For them, death is the end, or so they think. But for us as believers, death is just the next step in our eternal life with God. So Satan was defeated decisively on the cross. And number two, notice this, Satan is doomed eternally in the lake of fire. Satan's defeat on the cross was decisive. In John 12, 31, Jesus declares that now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And in John 16, 11, Jesus adds that the ruler of this world has been judged. And the ruler of this world at this time is Satan himself. But the final blow will be delivered when Satan is thrown in what to the Bible calls the lake of fire. We see Satan's final doom in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Look what it says. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire in brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And make no mistake about it, Satan's doom is guaranteed by God himself. This is as certain to happen as the fact that Christ already came and died and rose again. 
I love what Martin Luther said about Satan's doom. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We're like, what is that one little word that defeats the devil? It is the name Jesus. On the cross, Jesus decisively defeated Satan, and now he is eternally doomed. But I know what some of you are thinking already, because I'm thinking it myself. Well, if Satan is defeated, he doesn't seem to know it. Because he seems to be having a field day in this world of ours. And it's true. Satan is defeated and he is doomed. But notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. He is still very dangerous. We have seen that on the cross Satan was defeated decisively. But on the other hand, the Bible also warns us that Satan is still dangerous until he is thrown into the lake of fire. This is why Peter, that disciple who betrayed Jesus and then later was restored in his faith, this is why that same disciple, Peter, writes in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a, what? A roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So resist him. Stand fast in the faith, Peter says. You go to James, and he says in verse four, chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And the apostle Paul, he tells us in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. He is defeated and he is doomed, but he is still dangerous. Make no mistake, what happened on the cross was indeed the total defeat of Satan. And in legal terms, we could say it this way. Satan was tried he was found guilty, and he was sentenced to eternal destruction. However, that sentence has not yet been executed. Perhaps you could say Satan is currently out of bell. He's out on bond. He's wrecking havoc across this world while waiting for the day when he will be cast into the lake of fire once and for all. And until then, Satan roams this world, destroying lives, breaking up homes and families, and disrupt, disrupting God's work as much as he can. So understand something here. Christ's victory on the cross doesn't mean Satan can no longer fight against us as Christ followers here this morning. Think of it this way. Remember when God stripped King Saul of his title as king? You go back to the Old Testament. They're the nation of Israel, the very first king, because they, they didn't want to follow God as king. They basically, God, give us a human king. God relinquishes to their request and gives them King Saul. But because of Saul's disobedience, because of his arrogance, God stripped him as king, stripped him of his title as king. And yet Saul was still allowed to harass King David for 10 years. 
David's now king. But Saul's still harassing him, even though he's been stripped of his title. And in much the same way, although Satan has been defeated and disarmed, he is still allowed to harass us. And the obvious question that I know I want to ask, and perhaps you're asking yourself, is why? Why does God then allow Satan to live? Why does he allow him to roam this world of ours? Why does he allow Satan to harass us as his Christ followers? Listen, why doesn't God just wipe Satan out? Have you not often thought that? After all, God has the right, he has the power to do this. In Revelation 20.10, says that God is actually going to do it one day. So why didn't God just cast Satan into the lake of fire yesterday? I mean, if God had done it yesterday, I wouldn't be tempted today. The Bible says, lead me not into temptation. Well, the best way not to be led into temptation is to take the tempter away, so it seems. So God, why don't you do us a favor and just take Satan out of the way now? I don't know about you, but that's what I'm thinking, and yet God doesn't do it that way. Why? Why does God allow Satan to still roam this world? Well, here's the short answer. Because God's glory shines brightest when we choose to live for Jesus Christ over Satan. God aims to defeat Satan in a way, listen to me, in a way that glorifies not only his power, but also the superiority of his son Jesus over Satan. John Piper puts it this way in his book, Spectacular Sins. I quote his words. God has ordained that Satan have a long leash with God holding on to it because he knows that when we walk in and out of those temptations, struggling both with the physical and moral effects that they bring, more of God's glory will shine in that battle than if he took Satan out yesterday. So yes, God could simply exert his raw power and he could snuff out Satan at will. And that would certainly glorify God's power. But it would not display so clearly the superiority of Jesus over Satan. For that was displayed on the cross when Jesus was defeated. And Christ's superiority now continues to be displayed when we, as his Christ followers, as his believers, it is, continues to be displayed when we, listen to me, in this world now, when we live each day and we resist the works of the devil, we walk away from temptation and we choose to follow Jesus Christ and we choose to live for him. Listen, the superiority of Christ is displayed in that through your choices through your life and how you live. That's phenomenal. But let's be honest about it. That ain't easy, is it? If you're like me, I fail all the time in that. 
Living for Christ is easier said than done. After all, Satan's temptations are real. He's conniving. He's scheming. He knows my weaknesses. He knows my weak spots. He knows what buttons to push so I fall in temptation. Which leaves us then with this crucial question. How then? How do we live for Christ over Satan? How do we show, how do we display with our lives the superiority of Jesus Christ? Well, in the meantime, till Satan's final doom, notice this. There is grace to live for Jesus Christ. In other words, we are not left here in our own power to do this. We have the very power and grace of God, which in itself glorifies God and shows the superiority of Jesus Christ. Look what it says here in Romans 16, verse 20. And the God of peace, I love this next sentence, and the God of peace will what, Satan? Crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. In other words, Paul is telling us until the final victory comes and Satan is vanquished in the lake of fire, there is grace, there is power to stand against Satan and to live for Christ each and every day. And this grace arrives every day in just the right amount for the battles we face. It is new every morning. Great is God's faithfulness to his sons and daughters in Jesus Christ. And so as we conclude, perhaps the most important question that we should ask ourselves in light of all that we've heard here this morning is this. Are we living for Christ by God's grace? Are we living for Jesus Christ? Are we following Christ by God's grace? Or are we still living for the works of the devil? Do you feel defeated? Do you feel discouraged? Listen, be strong in God's grace. Not in yourself, but in the grace of God. Have you been tempted to give in to sin and temptation? Resist the devil, James tells us. And he will what? He will flee from you. No, we don't, we don't resist in our own power. We resist in the power and in the grace of God that we have. We have the Holy Spirit within us to do this. Are you living in sin even now? Then run to the cross. You say, why run to the cross? Because that's where you receive God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ. That's where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. And even as Christ followers, we run to the cross and we ask for forgiveness. We confess our sins and God is faithful and just to always do what? To forgive us and to cleanse us beautifully. Run to the cross. Maybe you're here this morning and you have yet to run to the cross for the very first time. You have yet to bow your knee, to bow the heart, and in your heart and in humility and in brokenness, 
to repent of your sin, to acknowledge to God, I am a sinner by birth and by choice, and I am helpless and hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. God, I confess that to you, and I am broken, and I see my need apart from me. I see a need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, save me. I put my faith in what you have done in your life, in what you have done on the cross, in dying in my place and paying the penalty for my sin. I invite you to be my Lord and Savior. That is the place to start if you have yet to do so. In a moment here, we're going to bow our heads. The praise team's going to sing, and you can cry out to Jesus and do just that. You can ask him to save you. You can confess your sins and believe and receive in him. For those of you that are already believers, let me encourage you to give thanks first and foremost. To give thanks for what took place on the cross and the gift of eternal life that you have received already. And to commit to live for him, not in your own power, but in the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we thank you. Oh, how we thank you, because we are needy, needy people. And so we thank you that you loved us so much that you would be willing to send your son to die on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can be reconciled to you for all eternity. And so, Lord, I ask that you would take the truth of the gospel now and you would open up our eyes, you would open up our hearts and minds to receive it. You would search our hearts and we would respond. We would respond in salvation, we would respond in confession of our sins, we would respond with thankfulness of heart. And so, Lord, use our time here in the next moments to grab hold of us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The praise team's going to sing, and as I do, let me encourage you to respond as the Spirit is leading you to do so, right where you're seated.